The demand for energy is accelerating like never before. New sources are emerging and established ones are evolving. Collectively, all sources will provide the fuel needed to support future global demand. Here on the Energy Scale-Ups podcast, we explore and learn about the people and companies solving today's problems to produce tomorrow's energy needs. Here is your host, Jose Solis. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Halliburton Labs. Halliburton Labs works with early stage companies to help accelerate their growth by providing access to operational expertise, mentorship, as well as financing opportunities as companies prepare to scale. Enter to win their weekly giveaway at HalliburtonLabs.com forward slash giveaway. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to another episode of the Energy Scale-Ups podcast. I'm your host, Jose Solis, and today I'm joined by our guest, Tim Montague. And today's topic is going to be solar energy and battery storage. Tim, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? Hey, Jose. It's great to be here. I really appreciate the opportunity. So just for a sense of geography, tell the listeners where you are. I live in Champaign-Urbana in central Illinois. This is a college town, home of the University of Illinois, depending on traffic, two and a half, three hours south of Chicago. Awesome. Awesome. And you're the host of the Clean Power Hour podcast, right? Yes, I am. I got into podcasting in 2017. I created a show called The Solar Podcast first, which is now formally on hiatus. But And then I started an, a news roundup with a colleague of mine in the industry, in the solar industry, named John Weaver, who is a journalist for PV Magazine, one of the best-known trade pubs in, in solar PV. And we mix it up. We do a news roundup every week on the energy transition, so solar, battery storage, wind, hydro, and other emerging technologies. And then we throw in a little space just for spice and fun because we're both space geeks. And we were both Tesla owners. Now I sold my Tesla, and I, I can <laughs> explain that. But yeah, podcasting is a big part of my life, and I love sharing my knowledge and you know what's going on in the energy transition. It's a very exciting time to be alive. No, you're not lying about that. That's for sure. So you're a subject matter expert in solar energy, battery storage. What motivated you to pursue a career in the solar energy industry? It really goes back to my childhood, Jose. I I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Even though I was born here in the Midwest in Indiana, my parents were in grad school. But when I was two years old, I moved to Albuquerque. My dad continued his degree there and then became a professor of environmental studies. But he was a techie and DIYer. And we were doing solar thermal, which is making hot water with the sun's energy. You basically build a panel the size of a door and you paint it black and you run copper tubing through it. And voila, you get hot water, you know, cold water in, hot water out. And there was a little energy fair at the University of New Mexico every summer that we participated in. PV wasn't on the scene in the 70s because it was too expensive. It was only on satellites. Satellites started getting powered by PV back in the 60s. So it was, a you know it was like $300 a watt. And now we're we're talking sub 30 cents a watt yeah, globally for just the technology. So solar has come down tremendously. It's come down 90% just in the last 10 years. And so in 2016, a Canadian cold called me and said, hey, we've, we've reached grid parity with solar PV. I thought I was going to work in the wind industry, honestly, because we have a huge amount of wind coming in here in central Illinois, starting in 08, when we got our first RPS, Renewable Portfolio Standard, which is really one of the major drivers of the growth of renewables. If you have a good RPS, then you will get wind and solar happening. Anyway, I dove in with both feet. It just happened to be the right time at the right place because we got great legislation called FIJA in 2016, which led to incentives 
fueling about 3,000 megawatts of solar. Now we have just re-upped that to a 100% RPS, and we're tripling the pace of solar installations here in Illinois. So it's a boom. It was a boom and a bust. My market was busted. I work in commercial industrial solar, and now I'm segueing into utility-scale solar, so we can talk a little bit about that. But yeah, so technology is in my blood, and that experience, though, in New Mexico really made an impression. And even though I diverged from the energy industry, sustainability, technology, and people are the threads that connect you know, my careers and my passions. And, and now, for the last five years, I've very squarely been on a mission for the energy transition. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you for giving all of us an overview. So in simple terms, let's just kind of go back for a second. How does solar energy and battery storage work? Majority of our listeners probably are in the energy industry, maybe even specifically oil and gas, but they have an interest in solar and battery storage. And I'm sure that they've done a lot of their own homework, but from a subject matter expert, you know, can you give us, you know, just a really easy overview? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, solar is black semiconductor that it comes in the form of these panels that are about the size of a door. They're three feet by six feet approximately. They're they're a little smaller for residential and they're a little bigger for commercial industrial and utility scale. They're getting bigger and bigger. They might eventually become the size of like a sheet of plywood, a four by eight footprint is conceivable. But anyway, it's a black panel. You put it out there in the sun, it converts photons to electrons. The semiconductor technology, when it's struck by the photon, that releases the electrons. And then you you collect them in a wire. And voila, once you run that through an inverter, you have AC power, which is what the grid runs on, right? All of our infrastructure runs on AC power. So that, so solar PV makes electricity from sunshine. And then you're only getting that, that electricity when the sun is shining, right? So if it's nighttime, zero energy out of the PV panel, okay? I mean, zero. And so you want a way to have electrons at night from some of that extra energy you might be getting in during the day. If you want to offset 100% of your load, so to speak, with a solar array, you're generally going to be over-generating in the summer and under-generating in the winter. And so when you're over-generating in the summer, what are you doing with that extra energy? Typically, it's just going back onto the grid because most solar PV is grid-tied. Well, with a battery, then you can store some of that extra energy, but more importantly, you can then install hardware to island from the grid and create what's called a microgrid and have resiliency. So if there's a power outage, as there was in Texas in February, right, and you have just solar PV, but not a battery, you're SOL because the PV is by code designed to shut off when the grid goes down. And that's a safety measure for line workers. And that's there's solid logic in that. So installing the battery allows you to take advantage of extra power in the summer, but then also have extra access to electricity in the form of a microgrid, which we call resiliency in the industry. And that's, that's a huge benefit in the case of outages. But for commercial industrial customers, there's other value stacks, we call it. So you can prevent uncontrolled shutdowns. If you're a manufacturer, you can participate in something called frequency regulation, which I'm sure you're familiar with, which is a grid service and you get paid for that. So the grid operator here in Illinois, PJM in Northern Illinois or MISO, 
I think this is more in PJM that that you can monetize frequency regulation. It's not universal. Not all of the ISOs, not all of these regional grid operators will allow for monetization of frequency regulation. But that's just an example of the stack. You can also attack demand charges or do what's called peak shaving. So, you know, it's those when the when the grid is really cranking, the utility charges its customers more for that electricity. The price of electricity fluctuates over the course of the day. And that's called a time of use charge. So if you're in a market where you have time of use charges, it behooves you to attack those peaks with solar and battery storage. And it's an either or or both and. If that peak is happening at night, then you need a battery because the solar is not doing anything for you. So that's in a nutshell. It's just a nice pairing. And then there are also tax incentives. When you pair a battery with a solar array, you can take the ITC, the investment tax credit, on that CapEx. And that is 26%. It's a really generous tax incentive. So let's say, for instance, if somebody installs solar panels and battery storage at their home or their business, then the cost of that entire project can be deducted from their taxes at a rate of 26% of the overall cost of the project. Yeah. It's not bad. <laughs> it's very generous. And, and it's a tax credit, which is like cash. And there's new legislation in the works that's going to make that a direct pay credit so that nonprofits can use it. You don't have to have a tax liability, in other words. Okay. So the incentives are going to get sweeter. I mean, the, the Biden administration is trying to get the United States to install a terawatt of solar by 2035. We have 100 gigawatts today. And so we're going to go from 100 gigawatts to 1,000 gigawatts by 2035. And then we're going to go to three terawatts by 2050. So there's just this, we're, we're really at the bottom of this S-curve right now. And we're about to go vertical for about two decades. And then it'll asymptote because we will have saturated the grid with wind, solar, and battery storage and other things. You know, there's always going to be a mix of technologies but coal and natural gas are in decline for economic reasons, purely, you know, and we in the clean energy industry generally have nothing against coal. Coal is in my blood. My, my grandfather, Papa Bud Murphy in Chicago, ran a trade publication called The Black Diamond. Illinois is a coal state. And, and so the coal industry is, is a big part of the economy, or it was, and my family was directly involved in that economy. Hey, it's Mark LaCour, Editor-in-Chief here at OGGN. Just a quick interruption to share a few things that are going on in October. We have not one, but two industry mixers this month, one on October 7th and one on the October 21st. Just check out our social. They're always great events, and the money that you help us raise goes to fight human sex trafficking, and you get to network with oil and gas executives. We have a new show just came out, Energy Transition Podcast. Also remember, we have 14 other podcasts for your listening pleasure. And then the end of this year, we'll be full media partners for the 23rd World Petroleum Congress, December 5th through 9th. The World Petroleum Congress has not been in Houston over 30 years, so make sure you put space in your calendar. Come check us out. And then finally, join the OGDN Street Team on LinkedIn. It's our all-volunteer group that's really going places. I'll see you again next month. That brings me to my next question, which is, what are some of the benefits and drawbacks to solar energy? Because, I mean, I know that you know, the amount of energy that the sun unleashes on the earth every minute, you know, is enough energy to power the entire globe. 
Yeah, in one hour, in one hour, we get enough sunlight to power society for an entire year. Another way to think of that is we get about 10,000 times more energy from the sun than we utilize in society. So that gives you the scale of the opportunity, so to speak. Those free photons are abundant. And in terms of the cost benefit, that's, that's the, you know, the, you, I mean, you mentioned pros and cons. The pros are there's an abundance of photons. Okay. The sun is, is a, a huge, a giant fusion reactor in the sky, as Elon Musk likes to say. And those photons are free if you have the technology to capture them. Now, the technology is not free, right? For a residential system, we're talking twenty to $30,000. If you throw in a battery, add $15,000. If you want three-day off-grid resiliency, double the battery or triple the battery. And so, you know, it's not easy economically for residents to grab onto true resiliency today with solar and battery storage. It's generally if you are in an area where there's some real likelihood of an outage that you would, you know, take those steps. And today, of course, it's quite common for people to have a backup generator, a natural gas generator or a diesel generator. And certainly in commercial industrial facilities, this is very common because, Grid outages can be very costly. I'll give you an example. You know, we work with a injection molding company here in central Illinois. Every time they have an uncontrolled shutdown, when the grid fades, like they have a brownout or a blackout, it costs them $50,000. And that's because the machines get gummed up and they have to clean them out and it's time consuming and costly. So when they install a battery, which they've done now, then they have what's called ride through and they can avoid those uncontrolled shutdowns. So the cost, the CapEx is, is a barrier to entry, both at the residential and the commercial industrial level. But at the utility scale, you know, solar electricity is now the cheapest source of new power on the grid globally. And it is the fastest growing source because of that fact. It has surpassed wind and it has far surpassed now coal and natural gas installations. And it's just kind of pulling away. So you know, in terms of that pro-con, really the con is just, it requires access to capital. You can you can take a loan, you can get a lease, you can do it, what's called a PPA, a, you know, power purchase agreement. So there's ways around having a huge chunk of capital, so to speak, right? And that, of course, does make it more accessible. And then there's incentives like we have now in Illinois, where these incentives are very generous in the form of SREC, solar renewable energy credits. And there's also a smart inverter rebate. So you might get 40% of the CapEx back in the first five years. And that really shortens the payback period. We now have a payback period of like five to seven years for commercial industrial and residential solar. Without those incentives, it was it was 15 years, right? And that's just not very compelling. Power is very cheap here in, in the Midwest. I myself participate in a municipal aggregation program and I'm paying four and a half cents per KWH which is just incredibly cheap. Yeah. You know, power in California might be 24 cents. I don't know what it is in Texas, but four and a half cents is just incredibly cheap. So that is a barrier to entry. You mentioned Tesla, you mentioned Elon, and I know that they've been working on solar panels that look like roof shingles. And yes, can you sort of talk to that and tell us a little bit about that and where you think that's going? Yeah, you know, they really made a splash a couple of years ago with the solar shingle. They call it the solar roof. This is what we call building integrated solar PV, where the, the roofing material itself has photovoltaics embedded in it. So Tesla, what they've done is they've created a glass tile 
And these come now connected in rows. So they're really more like solar panels that look like shingles and they act like shingles. And they're made of gorilla glass. And so they're, you know, resistant to hail strikes. And of course, they're weather resistant. It's a very good roof. It's also very expensive. And so it's used only in higher end construction. Generally speaking, newer construction is going to lend itself. But the solar roof has not has not really taken off. Okay. It's for a variety of reasons. One is the price. Two is the technology is a little complicated. You're trying to get roofers to become, you know, solar installers. And Tesla was not the first company to come out with a solar roof tile or solar shingle. Many of the roofing manufacturers over the years have rolled out solar shingle products. Some of them have lasted. Some of them have not. There's kind of companies get in, companies get out. But now some of the major roofing company, if you just Google, you know, solar roof tile or solar shingle, you'll see there's a handful of companies that are making photovoltaic products for the roofing industry. So in addition to Tesla, who are, I guess, you know, other than Tesla, who probably would you say out on the market right now has probably got some pretty interesting solar roof panels that might be a pretty big competitor for Tesla? You know, off the top of my head, I cannot think of who the competitor is. We don't deal with residential solar at all. Well, at my former employer at Continental Energy Solutions, and so I really can't, I can't say, I have to look at the Wikipedia page on this, which there is a Wikipedia page on the topic of photovoltaic shingles. <laughs> it is interesting, Jose, how good of a marketer Elon Musk is, right? That he has burned his, you know, has burned Tesla into our brain. Like he gets noticed. He knows how to make a splash. And the fact that I, working in the solar industry, really don't have a second on the tip of my tongue company that makes solar shingles. I see here that Dow Chemical has a product, which doesn't surprise me, right? Big chemical company, they're making roofing materials. But yeah, it's, you know, the building integrated space in theory is a wonderful thing because we all need walls and roofs, right? And windows. And there's actually technology to solarize windows also to embed photovoltaics inside windows where you're still getting the benefit of some light coming into the building, but then also generating electricity. And you can imagine with a high rise, they have a tiny roof to volume ratio. So you really can't solarize a high rise building per se, but if it was clad in solar glass, then you could. Right. And so that's also a thing. It's still a rarity, but in 20 years, it'll be cost competitive and it will become a ubiquitous part of the built environment. It's just not there. Right now, the traditional solar panel is the way to go from a cost competitive perspective. Do you think we'll, and this brings me to another idea, because I've seen like concept cars that have like the roofs of the cars made in, or that have solar panels on the roof of cars to charge electric vehicles. Is that yeah. something that you think is really going to happen? Or I mean, I think it'll eventually happen once the technology gets there, but maybe how far away is that or, or how practical would that be? Yeah, unfortunately, with a car like a Model 3 or a Model Y Tesla, if you, you know, coated the roof, all of the surfaces basically that are exposed to light with photovoltaics, at best, you're going to get about 15 or 20 miles of additional range per day. So if you're only commuting, you know, 15 miles, sure, you could have a solar-powered Tesla. Most people's commute is a little longer, I think on the order of 40 miles, 
And so while it might be used as in an augmentary fashion, right? I mean, if you're parked at work and you're not using your car and your car's in the sun, great, you can, you know, charge your battery. But you really want more than 15 miles of range for a day's charging, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. What are some of the current trends or changes that are happening in solar energy and battery storage that you see? It's all about this cost adoption curve, really. Like we are still at the bottom of this S curve and we're starting to go vertical. And the price of solar has come down 90% in the last 10 years because it is now taking off, right? As you double the adoption of a technology, the price comes down about 25%. That's kind of a well-known phenomenon in the tech world. And so solar has gone through a major decline in pricing. It will continue to gradually decline, but that's pretty much asymptoted now. Batteries are 10 years behind solar, so batteries are really dropping fast. And that's great, right? Because we want to electrify transportation, for example. And right now, electric vehicles are still a little out of the reach of the mainstream consumer. But there are now $40,000 electric vehicles, the Nissan Leaf, for example. And I think we're about to get a federal incentive for EVs, which will, of course, help that. So while you know EVs are only 1% to 2% of car sales in the U.S. today, in five or 10 years, they're going to be a majority. And so when you're at 1%, you're only seven doublings away from 100%. And so that phenomenon of exponential growth really can cause a rapid shift. And, and that's where we are. We're on the cusp of the electrification of transportation. And, you know, it's just one of these transitions. Tony Siba likes to point out, he has a great book called Clean Disruption. And if you just Google him, you'll find lots of talks that he gives. He's a professor at Stanford University, but he likes to give that example of New York City and the horse and buggy transition to the internal combustion engine vehicle. And in 19, 1901, he'll show a photo of a certain intersection and it was all horse and buggy and there was one internal combustion engine vehicle in the photo, right? And then fast forward to 1913 and it's all internal combustion engine cars and the horse and, and there's one horse and buggy left. We didn't have anything against horses. It was just that internal combustion engines took you further, faster, more conveniently, right? And it just swept the industry. That's what's happening in solar and storage. I think it might have been Ford that said by the year so-and-so, they're not going to make any more combustible engines. They're going to make all electric vehicles, right? Was it Ford or was it? Yes. Ford has officially announced that. I'm not sure what the date they've given. And some countries and states are starting to ban the sale of internal combustion engine cars. New York State and California have both drawn a line in the sand. I think New York's is 2035, I want to say. So, you know, within the next 15, 20 years, we're going to see more and more incentives, so to speak. And the writing is on the wall for the automakers, like it or not. Yeah. It's either transition to pure EVs or die. That is the challenge they are faced with. And, you know, Ford is one of the more forward thinking ones. Of course, VW being the other one. And then the pure EV companies, we see, gosh, you know, just a growing drumbeat of new EVs. The Rivian is now pumping out electric pickup trucks right here in central Illinois in a town called Bloomington Normal. And what a beautiful vehicle. If you haven't seen the Rivian, check it out. Tesla, of course, is the best known EV brand, but Nissan is in that game. Toyota's not there. Toyota, The Japanese car companies haven't gone there yet. I'm not sure what is holding them back. That is a bit of a mystery to many of us in the energy industry, but they'll get there, I think. Of course. 
yeah, I can't wait to drive around in the Cybertruck around Houston. People are going to love it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Now, I have a deposit on a Cybertruck, and I'm looking forward to that. I actually just put a deposit on a Rivian as well, because the Cybertruck is getting pushed back to 2023, I think. I mean, that's too tempting for Tesla to really focus on the Model Y, which is a small SUV, and it's about to be the most popular car in America. Most people don't even know what it is, but I owned one for nine months, and then I ended up buying a forerunner and, and trading it in because I like to camp and I have a, a trailer that I tow. I had a class C before that, which is an all-in-one RV. And then I got this trailer and I needed a good tow vehicle and the model Y could tow it. It's a light tra trailer, but it cuts your range in half and you're only getting 300 miles of range as it is. So 150 miles of range is a little iffy when you're going to rural places. Yeah. Like no I go to, I go to Northern Michigan you know, what we're really needing is more charging, you know, fast charging infrastructure. People get excited about, you know, these level two chargers that once you have a level two charger, you realize, well, that gives you like 20 miles of range per hour of charging. You really want 300, 500 miles of range per hour of charging. So you can charge up at a fast charger, at a supercharger with a Tesla, you can charge in 50 minutes. And, you know, that is still a delay. And so we want to get that down and, and there's going to be more and more good and better technology coming into that space for fast charging. That really is the, the bee's knees. It's either that or doing battery swapping. And, and that is a thing. There's a company I think called Neo out of China that is doing the battery swapping thing. That brings up a good point or brings up my next question, which is which country or countries are producing the most solar energy right now? Yeah, you know... The United States was an early adopter. We invented the modern photovoltaic cell in 1954 at Bell Labs in New Jersey, but we are no longer the number one, but we are in the top, I think, three. The, okay. the biggest consumers of solar PV are China, Japan, Germany, the United States, and Northern Europe in general, you know, is an early adopter. And people sometimes wonder, like, does solar work in the northern latitudes, like in the upper Midwest or in Canada? And the answer to that is yes, it absolutely does. Germany is the same latitude as Canada. Germany's quite far north. And you have to tilt the panels at a steeper angle so that they, they get light in the winter. But anyway, I lost my train of thought there. What, what, <laughs> yeah. Oh, we're talking about global, yeah. yeah, the global leaders in PV consumption. China is is the number one by far. They consume more than twice what we're consuming. So they're leaning into the net zero economy. They have a goal of going net zero by 2060, even though they are still building fossil plants, fossil coal plants and gas plants in China. They're really leaning into to wind, solar and batteries. And most of the major manufacturers of batteries are from China as well. So it's nice to see some homegrown companies like Tesla going after batteries. So last question, here in the United States, what is our current would you say our current use like percentage out of the entire energy picture? And then where do you think it'll be in the next, I don't know, let's say 10 years for solar? Yes. Yeah. We're around 5% of grid power with solar photovoltaics today. So we have to grow by 20 X to get to hundred percent. Not that we would try to get to hundred percent with just solar, but like I said, we are going to really step on the gas now with a combination of what's going on in Washington, D.C., and what's going on economically with the technology. So we are going to be doubling 
year over year for quite a few years now. We're going to start installing, you know, last year we did 20 gigawatts. We're going to go to 30 gigawatts a year by 2025. And then we're going to go to 60 gigawatts a year through 2050. So it is a rocket ship ride, I like to say. The solar industry is truly exploding right now. It's not the only industry. Wind is growing at a healthy clip as well, and batteries are following now. So any of those technologies are worth looking at if you are wanting to make an investment, either for your facility or as an investor, right, just in the marketplace. And as, as we were discussing in the pre-show, I get approached by a lot of investors on LinkedIn because there's more money flowing in, there's more capital flowing into solar PV than there are projects available. So it's a competitive market, but if you're, it's good for the, you know, the solar industry. If you're trying to fund a solar development, it's pretty happy days because there's a lot of money coming from the Middle East and Europe and of course, North America. Awesome. Tim, thank you so much for spending some time with us today and educating us on solar and giving us your insights. Super valuable, super interesting. Definitely enjoyed our conversation. How can listeners connect with you? How can they find you? Where should they connect you? Let me spit that out. I'm very easy to find on LinkedIn. I love to connect with people on LinkedIn. That's a great place if you just search my name, Tim Montague on LinkedIn. I'm also on Twitter, TG Montague on Twitter. M-O-N-T-A-G-U-E is my last name. Those are probably the two best places, Twitter and LinkedIn. Awesome, awesome. And also be sure to check out his podcast, the Clean Power Hour podcast. We'll make sure to leave a link in the show notes for our guests to check out. Again, thank you very much. Thank you, audience, for joining us again. Before we go, just want to remind the listeners, make sure you enter to win our weekly giveaway from Halliburton Labs, our sponsor. It's an awesome backpack. It's recycled material, so you're not adding anything to the environment. You're actually helping us upcycle old material into a new cool backpack for you to use. And also make sure you leave a review rate and connect with us with any feedback that you may have about the show and check out other shows from the Oil & Gas Global Network. With that being said, Tim, we're going to sign off here. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot, Jose. Take it easy. Join us again next week for another episode of the Energy Scale-Ups podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.